Welcome everyone. Uh, if this is your first time here, thanks for joining us. My name's Russell. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, Anna kind of alluded to it. We have a saying at Hope Brooklyn that no matter where you are on the spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Um, so if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, this space is open and free for questions. Uh, if truth is really true, it doesn't need to be concerned about questions because it will defend itself in the end. Um, so this is a, a space that's free and open, and we're just so grateful that you're here. Uh, also, if you, if you miss, who was at a Friday night prayer at my place this last Friday? Yes, woo woo for that as well, right? It was such a blast. We're gonna do that once a month. Um, if you missed it, make it out to the next one. I seriously, like it ended and I was ready to just pray all night and have Eutychus fall out the window and raise him back to life or something. It was gonna be great. Um, and as Anna said, we're starting a new sermon series next week called The Paradigm. And I know like I'm excited about all the sermon series, but I really am excited about this one, all right? We're going through the Exodus. And uh, you know, admittedly, I haven't spent a lot of time in the Exodus the last couple years. And so getting back into it, <laughs> it's so revealing. Like we're calling it the paradigm because I, I believe it's truly that, that the story the Exodus tells is kind of like this blueprint. Um, it is the meta-narrative that the way we see God interacting with people in the Exodus, both Egypt and Israel, is how God interacts with us as Christians in the New Testament. And I would posit further, is how God, you see God interacting with cultures all across the world and through all times and places. And so it really is a, a series, um, and specifically next week, that you wanna bring a friend to, especially a friend that might not know what Christianity is all about. This would be really uh, a great message for them. All right, guys, we're in our last Sunday of the question series. Oh, there it is, there's one, there it is. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. It, well, it's been kind of love-hate. Literally, every week I've sat down with, uh, with, with my Bible and books and laptop and be like, all right, what's the question this week? What do we wanna take on? And I read the question and I'm like, and the church is done, no one's coming back, you know? Um, I've simultaneously loved and dreaded this, uh, but I, I hope, and I think it's accomplished what we wanted it to accomplish. That this is, for those of you who don't know, we are a, a new church, we're only like two months old. Um, but we wanna be a church that's not afraid of asking tough questions. We wanna be a church where, as Liz said, you don't have to check your burdens at the door. You don't have to check your doubts at the door. That if this story is true, as we say it is, then it can handle your doubts. In fact, I found in my experience, the people that are really certain and like really dogmatic inside are deeply afraid and suspicious of their beliefs. So this series has been about asking those tough questions and being like, hey, some of them I think have really strong um, answers pointing this way. Some of them I don't know. Some of them I'm still frustrated with God about, but I'm not a Christian just because this makes my life happy. I'm a Christian because I think this story is true. And I, and I think that's what this series has been about, of allowing us to ask tough questions and doubt together and wrestle together and disagree together but still end up at the table together because as Jesus said before he left his disciples, the world's gonna know you not by your theology, but by your love. It's gonna be a love that the rest of the world doesn't understand. And so we are at our last question today. And, and I think this is gonna be a fun one. I'm, I'm excited about it. Um, this was only asked by one person, um, but the question was basically this. Why has Christianity stolen all the pagan holidays? Right? 
Like, it's a fair question. When you look at the history of Christmas and Easter, um, you find it, it's kind of messy. It's a little dubious. Like, there was this practice in Roman history called Saturnalia, and it's this festival, and it was, it was accompanied by gift-giving and charity and parties and merrymaking. And Christianity kind of like sort of co-opted it a little bit or something. Like, what, what is that about? How can Christianity justify stealing the holidays? Um, and I think there's a deeper question in that. There's a deeper question. And I think what, what we're asking, what's at stake in this question is a methodology. What's at stake is a methodology. It's a methodology for how Christians are to approach the world. It's a methodology for how God is at work in the world. If you're not a Christian here today, you're gonna get sort of like a front row seat of like how God um, is at work among people who don't acknowledge him, who don't trust in him, who might even dislike him. It's a methodology that I think is at the essence of what the gospel is all about. And so what we're gonna do uh, to answer this question, and I'm gonna sort of answer it in a roundabout way, we're gonna go to the book of Acts. We're gonna go to the book of Acts, chapter 17. And for those unfamiliar, Acts tells the story of the first church. So Jesus of Nazareth, he does his thing, he lives, he heals, he stirs up a lot of controversy, he's crucified as a criminal, unjustly, and then his followers say he was raised from the dead. And then from that resurrection, he pours out his spirit, he, he ascends to the Father and he pours out his spirit on his followers and in churches, and churches just simply mean us, a group of people who worship Jesus as Lord. They start sprouting up all over the Roman Empire. And there's one particular church planter who we're gonna read a lot about today named Paul. And Paul's an interesting story in itself because when we first meet Paul in Acts chapter seven or eight, uh, he's called Saul. And Saul actually doesn't like Christians at all. <laughs> Rhyming, Saul doesn't like him at all. That was lame, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you get unfiltered right here. Saul is actually persecuting Christians. Um, and one particular Christian named Stephen is stoned to death and we're told in Acts 7 or 8 that Saul is standing there holding the coats of people who are killing him. And he's just not a believer. And then one day he's traveling to Damascus and he's traveling to Damascus to persecute the church there and he encounters a blinding light. And we're told that Jesus is in that light and Jesus speaks to him. And he says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Why do you kick against the goads? And Saul's like, who are you? And he goes, I'm Jesus, who you persecute. And from that point, Saul becomes a Christian. And later on, his name is changed to Paul. And then Paul, who formerly was okay, maybe killed Christians, but was okay with the killing of Christians, now is planting churches of people who are worshiping Jesus. And that's what we get to here in Acts 17. So if you have your Bibles, smartphones, or we're gonna put it up here, Acts 17, verses 16 through 34, and Paul is in Athens right now, Athens, Greece. And this is how it reads. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks 
as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happen to be there. And a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said to him, can we know more about this new teaching that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Sounds like a dream. And Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and he said, men of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown, I'm going to tell you about. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does not live in temples built by hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. And God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he has given proof of this to all people by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we wanna hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council and a few people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris and a number of others. All right, what's going on? What does this have to do with Christians stealing pagan holidays? Well, like I said, I think what we see in Acts 17 with Paul in Athens is a methodology for the gospel's place and presence in the world. And I think it's a methodology that you, if you're a Christian, explains how you can inhabit your work environments, what it means to be a Christian in your workplace, what it means to be a Christian among your friends who aren't Christians. And what we find here is that this is a, a methodology, a logic that challenges how us as followers are commissioned to live into this new reality. We were talking about this at the prayer meeting. I, I think it's really, it's interesting, it, it needs to be said. Um, so much of the time, this is gonna be a, a bad analogy, but go with me. It's almost as if the world is an anthill, right? We've heard that before. And this anthill, and all of us are ants, and we're just scurrying to and fro, and we're buying and selling, and we're, we're living, and we're marrying, and we're dying, and all that stuff. And it feels so real. It feels the most real. But what we fail to take into account is that there are two giant hands holding the anthill, right? And God is like, look, I am the most real. 
at any moment I could go, boop, and the anthill's done. But every day, we think that this is more real than this, when the reality is that God is everywhere. And so we become more real the more we look toward the hands, and we become less real, even ghost-like, the more we turn away. And the gospel is pretty much the story of God saying, I can't let this anthill go, I love it so much, but I can't communicate with them, I'm gonna become an ant too, and enter into the anthill, and tell the truth, and awaken people to be like, Whoa, there are hands holding us right now. I told you it was a bad analogy, but that's basically what's going on. And I think this is sort of the methodology that we see pregnant in this story. So the episode begins with Paul in Athens, with his spirit deeply distressed to see the city full of idols. So he debates everyone, and they sneer at him as a babbler, they're offended by his tale, but they wanna hear more. And you see this constantly. The story of Jesus, it stirs up, it disrupts, it provokes, it churns, it offends and makes angry. But you wanna hear more. Why? I would say because it's true. (laughs) Because within each one of the ants is a residue of the hands that holds it. And so when we hear that story, something lights up inside of us saying, it's like a a song that I, I knew long ago, but I've forgotten and it sounds so familiar, but I'm not so sure about it. So Paul delivers a sermon at the Areopagus. And what's so fascinating about this sermon is what he says, what he does not say, and how he says it. And I think that's what sort of explains this methodology. The methodology behind what Paul says, what he does not say and how he says it is illuminating for us when we consider how Christians can co-opt pagan holidays and sort of make it their own and say, hey, it's still really sacred and still really holy and they're still really good things. So let's go through that, all right? So the sermon starts, Paul's delivering his talk at the Oropagus and he goes, Athenians, I see that you are religious in every way. For going through your city, I observed your objects of worship, and I found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. What does Paul do in his first line? It's it's absolutely incredible. What does he do? He affirms them. He affirms the Athenian lifestyle, at least a part of it. He goes, I see you're religious in every way. Now here's what you have to understand about this. Paul is a Jew, right? They have 10 commandments, which are kind of like central to who they are as a Jewish identity. And number one is that you will have no other gods except for me. And number two is that you will not make an idol, a cast image of me, because I can't be represented. At the heart of what it means to be Jewish, Jewish is an abhorrence of idols. And we know that, right? Because the story begins and it says Paul is walking around Athens and his spirit is deeply distressed because of the idols. That's the whole reason he started talking because he couldn't stand all these idols. And yet the first thing he says when he approaches these, these Epicureans and these Stoic philosophers is I see you're religious. And that's a really good thing. He praises them for their idolatry. It would be like, The extreme example would be, say I ran across a group of people in Brooklyn 
who are worshiping their gods by sacrificing their children, right? I said it's extreme. And there's just like this visceral, like disgust. But if I want to tell them the good news of Jesus, I start by saying, hey, this desire to worship, that's really good. I praise you for that. Do you see how radical that is for Paul? And especially, we don't have to look too far in our own fractured environment to be like, what would it look like to start a conversation by praising someone who I detest most of what they're about, but finding something good in them and calling it out? That's what Paul does. He starts by saying, hey, look, worshiping is a great thing. It's in accord with our nature. Now, you're worshiping a few too many, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Let's start by saying worship, that's awesome. Great job, Athenians. I remember one time um, I was in an Irish pub in Queens, which if you know me, I have like a sixth sense of locating Irish pubs. It's pretty great. Like we're just walking down and be like, oh, two blocks north, one block east, there's a McConaughey's, you know? Um, and and I was, I was um, at a pub and I was talking with a guy named Simon, who was an Irish guy. And um, he was like, well, what do you do? I'm like, I'm a pastor. And his eyes got big and he goes, you're a pastor? You gonna go confess your sins for drinking after this? And I go, well, Simon, actually drinking's not a sin. And his eyes got bigger. He's like, drinking's not a sin. I'm going to your church. <laughs> and then he looks at the bartender who was also Irish. He goes, Paul, did you hear that? Drinking's not a sin. Let's go to his church. <laughs> now, one, like what, what, what's going on there, all right? Um, I start by affirming a part of his lifestyle. It's important to him, right? Now, I might have some questions about how much he's drinking or what his relationship with alcohol is, and we'll get there. But first, he needs to know that the Christian church is not about slapping you on the wrist. But first, you need to know that, like, there's a part that God, God actually is really happy when a group of people come around a table together with food and drink, and they raise a glass to one another and they go, you, I love you, I salute you, I honor you today. Like, he really loves that. That's actually the image of the new heaven and the new earth. It's a feast. I don't know if you know that. Like, all these images of golden streets and harps and all that, I'm not really into that. But the Old Testament and New Testament, you see, described as the new earth, as a feast where wine drips from the rock, where there's food, where everyone eats together. That's what is central to who God is. So what I did with Simon at first was like, hey, let me affirm a part of your lifestyle. We'll get to the questions later. But first of all, you need to know that who you are, there's good in there. So that's the beginning of Paul's methodology. He begins by finding where the God of creation, of their creation, the Greek creation, as well as his creation, is at work. When we come in, friends, and we dismiss a person's culture, we dismiss a person's entire reality, and there might be some serious drawbacks to their worldview or to their beliefs. There might be some serious questions, but when the first thing we do is dismiss them, we're not behaving with this in accordance with this methodology. We're not behaving as Paul did. We're not behaving as Jesus did, and we'll get there later. So what you see Paul do first is he affirms. He finds something to affirm. Second, he uses their words. He uses their words. He uses language 
that Greek Epicurean and Stoics would understand. So it's in the first line. He goes, men of Athens, I see how very religious you are in every way. Um, it's it. You wouldn't pick it up unless you're in the Greek, but luckily I was in the Greek. So um, religious, the word for religious, he uses is des daimon, des daimon. I think it's up there. Now, why that's interesting. That word is used exactly one time in the entire New Testament, right there. It's a very Greek word. Sebamai is used tons of times. And sebamai means the exact same thing. It means very religious, devout, worshipful. Now, why did Paul use the word daimon instead of sebamai? Well, because he's talking to Greeks. They would know that word. They would actually like understand that word. Sebamai is a Jewish way of saying religious. He's not talking to Jews. He's talking to Greeks. And actually, daimon is where we get the word demon. But don't, it doesn't have that negative connotation at the time. At this t- point in, in history, it simply means like spirits or divinities. So he's saying, I see that you're very religious. Sebamai is a Jewish word. By Paul using the word desdaimon, he's saying, guess what, Athenians? That unknown God you worship, he's already all up inside your worldview. He's already all up inside. Um, there's an African theologian who I've quoted before, Lamin Sene, and he says, all evangelism is translation. Everything about announcing the gospel, both with our words and our actions, is translating it into the language of the people we're trying to announce it to, which begs serious questions of like, what are non-negotiables and what are not? What are our battle lines that we're like, hey, we gotta hold on to this word and what do we not? And I don't know if there's answers. I mean, well, I have thoughts on the matter, but it definitely calls for discernment. Actually, Sine, he, uh, he studied the explosion of Christianity in Africa, and he found something really interesting. He goes, where Christianity has flourished in a post-colonial environment with a strong indigenous religious heritage, where it's flourished is where the gospel was translated using the words of the indigenous religion. Or as he puts it, Christian expansion was virtually limited to those societies whose people preserved the indigenous name for God. Isn't that fascinating? Where Christianity has flourished is when the gospels come in and say, and found out what's your worldview? Who's like the top dog God? Same God. Now we'll we'll get to the the, the details of the story because there's differences in the story. But if we use the same name, we'll understand. That's where Christianity has taken root and hold and flourished. Why? Because the gospel is about a story that honors everyone's particular culture. The gospel should honor Africans' Africanhood as it should honor Europeans' Europeanhood. The gospel is about the love of God that redeems and renews and sets free. And you've heard me say this before. It's one of my favorite lines of Sine's. He goes, Christianity should help Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Right? That's what the gospel is doing. And Paul is doing that by affirming a part of their lifestyle and then starting to use their words, not his own words. Not words that are familiar to a Jewish context of which Paul is a Jew, but words that are familiar to a Greek context, even if he doesn't agree with them entirely. 
He'll do the work of translation later. And it's hard work. Anyone who's ever done translation knows that like, it, it, it requires sweat. It requires sweat. It's hard work. So the question becomes, when dealing with pagan holidays, are there words, are there practices that could be good if we sort of redefined them, reappropriated them, but we don't have to dismiss them entirely? Like painting eggs around Easter. Maybe, maybe eggs had some sort of fertility cult in the beginning, but maybe now they can be a source that brings the family together to celebrate new life, the new creation, maybe. It's, it's this idea of like, what does it mean to translate the gospel message in the language of those we're trying to tell it to? So he affirms them, a part of them. He uses their words, and then he goes on, and this is what he says. And now he's getting to the meat. This is the bulk of his message. He goes, the God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the earth and allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from us. For in him, quote, we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, quote, for we too are his offspring. Now, that is Paul's presentation of the good news of Jesus. Do you find that a strange way of telling it? I do. What's, like, what's missing there? Well, he never names Jesus once. He doesn't. He never mentions the cross that Jesus died on. There's really no mention of Jesus' life or his miracles or his teaching. This is a very philosophical explanation of the gospel. What's he doing? He's framing the gospel story in stoic clothing. And stoicism was a philosophy, it was a worldview. He's framing the gospel story in stoic clothing and even quoting their own poets. He doesn't quote the prophets, which if you read elsewhere in scriptures, Paul constantly is saying, this is, Jesus has already been like um, foretold and, and prophesied in the Old Testament. He doesn't quote the prophets, he quotes stoic poets. In him we live and move and have our being. We too are his offspring. What is going on here? This is a stoic philosophical argument, tweaked a little bit. Now, I don't expect many of you, maybe, maybe you surprise me, I would love that, to like understand sort of stoicism, but essentially stoicism was premised on this one idea called the lagos. And the lagos is this guiding spiritual principle for all the cosmos. It's this ordering agent that orders things into cohesion and to harmony. Now the Stoics were all about conquering the passions, conquering the self, so as to reach a point of serene detachment, to reach a point where their lives would be in accord with the Lagos. 
similar to Buddhism, a little similar. But this is key. The Lagos in Stoicism is not a person. The Lagos is an impersonal force. An, a, a, an impersonal force, that's the best way I can describe it. An impersonal life force. This argument, this framework that Paul preaches is a Stoic argument. He's, he's basically telling their story back to them. He's, the Stoics are like, all right, tell us about the gospel. He goes, cool, let me tell you about Stoicism. But he makes one tweak. What does he do? He personalizes the Lagos. He goes, you're exactly right about everything except one thing. The Lagos is not impersonal. The Lagos is actually a very personal God who's really near to us at all times and does even more stuff, and we'll get to that later. You are so right about it all. Just one little catch. The Lagos is a person. And from the one to the all, the one who pervades all life, that one is not far from us. Your own poet said it. Your own poet said it. In him, we live and move and have our being. We are his offspring. Paul is essentially accepting the framework of their philosophy and infusing it, tweaking it and infusing it with a little bit of a nuance. He personalized the Lagos and he put the Stoic philosophers in relationship with this Lagos. All right, I know that's a lot. Modern example, okay? Modern example. What is the popular philosophy of today? I would probably say it's humanism. Humanism is, is really big in the West. And humanism is essentially the belief that every person is worthy of value and respect and dignity and every person has a voice and every person can use their voice to define who they are for themselves. Everyone in and of themselves are enough, is enough. And so much of that, as a Christian, I would say, yes, preach. So much of that, say yes. God, my God, the Christian God, Jesus, yes. Some small changes, small changes. But so much, I'd come in and be like, yes, everyone is worthy of like infinite respect, infinite value, infinite worth. If only there was one person on the earth, the God of creation would still come and die for that one person. Yes, but there's some tweaks. What are they? So I remember I was at a concert one time of an artist who is a Christian, um, though her, her fan base isn't like exclusively Christian and her music isn't exclusively Christian. Kind of, it, it's more spiritual, it's, it's, it's awesome. Um, but yeah, and I remember I was at this concert one time and she, she stopped the show. Well, not stopped the show, the show was going on but she started talking to the audience. You can tell I don't go to a lot of concerts. Um, and she started talking to the audience, right? And she goes, there's a light inside of every one of you. I know there is. And, and very true. But sometimes she goes, um, that light is threatened to go out. And it wants to go out. And I know I can't keep my light going on inside of me. And so I need others to help keep the light on. And so then she had the audience and I don't know if she knew what she was doing or not, but it was brilliant. It was Paul right here. She had the audience take the right hand and put it on their neighbor's shoulder. And then we had to start singing together. We started singing this, this refrain while we joined her in the song. What did she do there? She basically took humanism and she like accepted it because the parts of it are, that needed to be affirmed and she tweaked it a little bit. 
She goes, yes, you're worthy of, of, you have a voice and worthy of respect, but you're not enough in and of yourself. We need one another. And if we've gone a step further, we need a God too. We need a God. But that, that's the start right there. That is exactly what Paul does here. He accepts stoicism and he tells them their story and he just reframes a little bit of it. He personalizes the lagos. So first, Paul affirms, he uses their words, he translates them in their language. Then he accepts their framework and just tweaks it a little bit. And then one last thing he does. He finishes his sermon by saying this. And notice, it's still a very Greek telling of the gospel. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man who he doesn't name Jesus, he just calls him a man, who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some scoffed. But others said, we'll hear you again about this. And some of them joined them and became believers. The last thing Paul did is he offended them. Because make no mistake, this story does offend. It will. He went through every possible way to meet them where they are, to celebrate where God is already at work in their lives. The God of creation, who is just as much at work in them as he is in, in Paul. To, to use their language. But in the end, because the catch, the, the, the underlying message of it all is that there are two hands holding the anthill. And we need to be aware of that. We have to acknowledge that. That we are not here on our own accord and we don't exist for ourselves. In fact, we need a creator, we need a God. And repentance for Paul, repentance for Christianity, I know that might have a, a, a negative connotation. It simply means this, repentance is the recognition that I, in and of myself, am not enough in this world. That I can get married, that's not enough. I can have a great job, that's not enough. The only thing that will bring any sense of life is the recognition that I need God. And it's the surrendering in my heart that says, I don't want to be the Lord of my own life anymore. I surrender it to the one who made me and actually knows how to make me into a real human being better than I ever could. That's repentance. The entire sermon, Paul doesn't name God once in his Jewish name. He doesn't name Jesus, nor does he name the cross. He meets them where they are. He affirms their lifestyle he uses their language, he adopts their categories and subverts them, he emancipates the living God from the idol and he brings up the resurrection. Affirms, translates, frames, and offends. And some scoff and some ask to hear him again and some believe right then and there. Now obviously that was a roundabout way of answering the question, how can Christians steal pagan holidays? But hopefully you see it sort of gets at it. There's a lots of great things in the holidays. Families coming together, that's a great thing. Celebrating, merrymaking, that's a great thing. Now let's understand, let's tweak it a little bit. Let's, we can put up trees, we can put up lights, we can watch 
talking snowmen. We can do all that. And we can celebrate as a family. And we can practice generosity. And we can give back. And we can serve the less fortunate. And we can do it all because we're celebrating. At this time is when we know that the God of creation did not abandon us. And he came in the most mind-boggling of ways. And that is the, that's the impetus from which everything else flows. Now you notice, I said earlier, um, that this was a methodology that wasn't Paul's originally. That Paul actually uh, uh, didn't think up this logic. Um, and I wanna invite the worship team back up as we close. This methodology I can't call it Paul's, that gives him a little too much credit because he got it from somewhere else. And I don't know if he picked up on it, but I would ask this. Who was it who actually didn't make people come to him, but came to us? Put on our clothes, put on our skin, actually became our skin. Didn't just put it on, but became it. Who was it that affirmed the parts of our stories that were good, that didn't try to change us too fast, that showed up in our darkest moment and our most desperate time and said, you are loved right where you are. Like right where you are, right now, you are so adored. I can't describe how much I love you. I'm doing a happy dance just being with you right now. Who was it that quoted our own thinkers to us? And when he showed up, he quoted Jewish prophets? Who was it that accepted their categories but subverted them a little bit? I'm not here to abolish the law. The law is good. It's incomplete. I'm going to show you how it's incomplete, but it's good. He's like a walking paradox. And then who was it that offended everyone in the end? Because he died. He accepted death. And the Messiah would not accept death. The Messiah is coming in force. The Messiah is coming in violence. Not the way you think. I am the Messiah. I'll accept that name, but not the way you think. And who dies on a cross and who's buried in the grave and who's raised from the dead in new life. And some scoff and some want to hear more and some become believers right then and there. The logic of the Lagos the God made flesh, Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Lord, I think uh, we build battle lines because we're afraid. We're afraid that you're really not who you say you are. We're afraid of, of lines becoming blurry. You want them to be clear because it's a lot easier for us when we can see black and white. That's a lot easier. But to enter into another's culture, enter into another's worldview that I don't particularly agree with everything about and to find where you are already at work there because you are, that's true. You're already there. That's messy and it's vulnerable and frankly, it's humiliating. It's humiliating. I'll be misunderstood by other Christians. I'll be misunderstood I'm scared. I'm not smart enough to discern. And yet that's exactly who you are, God. 
You're the God who didn't make us come to you. You're the God who goes, I will give up my glory and I will become human and I'll come right to you. Even though you're the fallen one, you're the rebellious one, I'm gonna come to you. I'm gonna penetrate and enter into your culture and I'm gonna erupt it from the inside out. Life has dawned into the darkness and the darkness has not understood it and nothing can stop it. We are humbled by your logic, Jesus. We are absolutely stunned by a God who would be so humble and so vulnerable, by a God who would accept such humiliation. Lord, I pray for everyone in this room. If there are people here who are sensing a stirring on their heart, whose eyes are opening to the reality that you are who you say you are, that you've not come to destroy the world, you've come to set it all free. That even in that that process of surrendering, of saying, I can't do this, I need a God, that is actually the beginning of freedom unimaginable. That you have not come to be a tyrant, you've come to serve. You've come to be in relationship and you've served through your own death and resurrection. If there are people sensing that stirring, Lord, I would ask right here, right now, that they would just relent, stop fighting, and yield. That they would know that we're not Christians because it makes our lives happy. I can find many other beliefs that would make my life happy, that would give me what I want. There are many things about you, Jesus, that I don't understand. There are many things about this story that I don't like but I'm not a follower of you because it makes me happy. I'm a follower of you because you've erupted inside of me. Because I see your hands all around. I see the truth of your story. My heart has been melted by a God who would die on a cross. So give us courage, Lord, give people courage to yield to you right now. Say, all right, Jesus, let's give it a shot. To throw away pride, to throw away all sources of fear and just open their hands towards you. And Lord, for those of us here who are followers of you, we know it doesn't get easier. Every day we wake up and we surrender anew. But I pray that people would start thinking through that if this is your logic, if this is how you interact with the world, that if you're not afraid of being contaminated, that you would give us courage to enter into those environments, into our places of work, which can be cutthroat and ambitious and backstabbing and unfun, frankly, in places and at times. Would you give us eyes to see where you're at work? to call it out, to, to celebrate, to affirm 
Would you show us how to translate your love by our actions? Translate it into the language of our coworkers and our friends, that they would see who you are. Would you show us how to affirm and, and, and to accept the framework of the worldviews and the cultures around us, but to subvert them, to redefine them. Show us what that looks like. But don't, Lord, keep us afraid. Don't let us stay afraid and in comfort in this place because you did not make us. You did not call us to yourself to be comfortable. You called us to yourself to go out and through our lives to announce who you are. So I pray for courage for my friends here, my family. Embolden them. Let them know they're gonna make mistakes along the way. That's okay. You're not calling them to be perfect. You're calling them just to be honest, to live truthful lives, to live lives that would not make sense unless you were raised from the dead, Jesus. Lord, thank you for this community. Thank you for a church. May we always be a church not afraid of asking tough questions. May we always be a church where we don't um, allow pretense, where people are completely free to be who they are here. May we always be a church at the absolute core of who we are is love, sacrificial, unexplainable love a love that would give up all I have for another and especially my enemy. For that's who you are. That's your story. And that's what you're transforming us into. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.